0: Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting this morning, uh, let me also extend a a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're you're here. Uh, You might have the mistaken impression that um, people are just really scared to sit close to me. uh, And I showered Wednesday, so I don't know what the problem is. But we are, uh, in fact, missing a lot of our William & Mary students who are returning. And this is where they often sit, so we feel their absence this morning. But we're glad that you're here on this Sunday after Thanksgiving as we begin... Uh, to mark this next season of what it means for us as a church together to follow Jesus, and it's the time of Advent. And Advent, uh, as you may know, is a season that's been celebrated in the church as a season and a period of waiting and of expectation. As we go through these next few weeks of Advent together, we, we think back to the waiting of God's people for the Redeemer to come. And As we... As believers following Jesus celebrate Advent, we are also reminded that we are waiting for a second Advent, a second coming, the return of our Lord. And so we're a people waiting this Christmas season, and I wonder, maybe some of you are like me, that you have kind of ambivalent feelings about Christmas, and and this sort of hits me m- most years, that you feel like this is supposed to be this incredibly joyful, joyous time, right? And and so you've got to somehow muster up this great holiday cheer. You know, if, if there's one time in the year when, when, when you need to really uh, feel like, you know, life is beautiful, it should be Christmas, right? There's this great emotional pressure. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Others of you are thinking, yes, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And maybe that has been part of your experience as well is in this time of waiting, in this time of getting ready for Christmas, uh, some of you maybe, um, I think of my own kids who are young, and every year, as each year goes by, they, their eyes are open more and more to the joy of Christmas, as they are learned to wait and expect, as their eyes are brighter and as they're more excited about what's coming. Um, for others of us, maybe, you know, we think back over this year, and it's not a time of expectation, but it's a time of, of, of real sadness. Uh, for some of us this year, we've, we've lost people that have been close to us. Maybe you've lost a sibling, or a parent, or a spouse. Some of us this year have received hard news of illness, maybe of our own, or someone we love, and so there's just all these mixed feelings going into Christmas. But whatever your sense of that, or your feeling of that, you do have a sense that that something is supposed to be going on here. We are people who are waiting, who are longing, who are hungry for something, and Advent invites us to ask this question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, starting this Sunday and for the next several Sundays, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1 and 2 and we're going to look at the coming of Jesus through the eyes of some of the people who were there firsthand to see what they were waiting for and what they found in Jesus. This morning we're going to talk about Mary and next week will be Elizabeth, then Zechariah and the shepherds and in a few weeks we'll be talking about Simeon who greeted Jesus in the temple a week after he was born. So we're going to be journeying with these folks on an Advent season of, of waiting and of looking and expecting. Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, uh, you will find this on page 855. Let's pray together and then we'll read our text for this morning. Father, we come to you this morning in this time of waiting and expectation. Maybe some of us right now are stepping into this really joyfully, just thankful for the Christmas season and all that's ahead. Uh, And and for those, we give thanks uh, that you free us to worship and be glad. Lord, for those who come in this morning heavy-hearted, would you be quick to comfort, to remind that you are good, that you are there, uh, as they in particular maybe feel the hunger of this longing and waiting. Wherever we are this morning, would you meet with us, Father, by the power of your Spirit, that you might speak again Advent hope and life into our lives. And we pray this expectantly in the name of Jesus for whom we wait. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Then skipping down to verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's the word of the Lord given for our good and for his glory. Uh, This text, very familiar to many of us, Uh, two sections to this. The first part where Mary is informed about this incredible thing that's about to happen into her life uh, is known as the Annunciation as God's angel Gabriel comes to deliver to announce this news to her. And then the second part of what we read, beginning in verse 46, traditionally known as the Magnificat, comes from the Latin translation of verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, Latin Magnificat. These two incredibly important, central, and beautiful passages of Scripture. So this morning, we're going to look and see Advent and in the coming of Jesus through the eyes of Mary. And here's what we're going to see, I think, as we look at this text and what we're going to, we're going to hone in on. Uh, And I'm going to steal a phrase from a a pastor I know in Charlotte named Howard Brown, who's preaching on this passage and said it better than I could have myself. And here is simply the point of what's going on. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened. Okay, we're going to see that in a few different ways here this morning. We're going to see that in, in how he came to us, in why he came, and to whom he came. Okay, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened. First, in how he came, Jesus came, and this is going to sound incredibly obvious, but bear with me, into our world. He came here, to, to this real place, to this real world, 2,000 years ago, in a different part of this world, but to our real world. Now, I point that out because this story does not begin as so many in our uh, lives do, uh, this way, once upon a time, or in the words of uh, something that has been so formative in my own childhood, and I can still see it emblazoned across the screen, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Because Luke's aim, now whether you believe him or believe in Scripture or not, you need to understand that his aim is to tell you what actually happened. He does not think he's writing a nice spiritual story for you. If you were to go back to the first few verses of Luke chapter 1, you'd hear him saying something like this. Look, a lot of people have written down about the events of Christ's coming, so it seemed good to me also to to do the work of, of reading the sources, of interviewing people, and writing an orderly account of all that has happened to us in Christ Jesus. Luke is a historian writing... Uh, history for us. Again, you might not believe that, but you need to know that's his intent. And that's what the Bible proclaims here, that this did not happen long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It happened here. Jesus stepped into our world. So the first thing about Jesus being the best news, uh, the best thing that ever happened, was that he came and he came into our world, your world, my world. And he did it in a surprising way, not the way maybe you or I would have Pick because Jesus came in utter obscurity. Okay, if you're gonna come in and bring usher in a new kingdom and your aim is to utterly change everything about the world, then you don't do what Jesus did, a back corner of the world, one of the far ends of Palestine, far away from the seats of power. He didn't come to Rome. He didn't come to where imperial power held its sway. He came in the midst of an oppressed people. Jewish people living under the thumb of the Roman occupiers. And he did what we would not have done. He runs opposite of every impulse we have to grasp and to seek power. He comes in the middle of utter obscurity. And then we see that Jesus came not only in our world and in obscurity, he came through a miracle. Look at what it says here in verse 34. As Mary asks an incredibly pertinent question. Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel goes on to explain. He says, the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you. Something miraculous and unheard of is going to happen to you. Now, we might find ourselves being uh, 21st century uh, scientific snobs at this point when we think, you know... We know that children are not born to virgins, but all those uh, benighted people living in the ancient Near East, bless their their hearts, they didn't know how this worked, right? What does Mary say? That's exactly her question. She knows how this works. How is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, this is going to be a child like no other. And yes, God is stepping into our world, but in a way you would have never expected. Mary, something is happening that is utterly unheard of. And it's happening now. And it's happening to you. And then we see that Jesus came through this miracle and that He comes. God comes to us in the flesh. Look at the remarkable things that the angel says about Jesus here. Verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. Who is this Son that is coming? What does He say? He will be called the Son of the Most High. Now when Mary hears this, especially with Mary's ears that were very attuned to to the Old Testament, she would have heard that phrase this son of the Most High, and she would have known that this child who was coming was going to be remarkable. And she would have heard him, uh, the angel referring to this being the heir of King David, and she would have a category for that, this unbelievable child. Now, what Mary may well not have realized at this moment, but as Luke goes on in the Gospel of Luke and in his next book, the book of Acts, to unpack and unfold for us, is that this was not simply some remarkable child, This was in fact a divine child. That this Son who is to be born is literally the Son of God come in the flesh for us. Jesus. The best thing that ever happened. God in the flesh for us. As Isaiah says when he speaks of this coming of Jesus he calls Him Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Now, Because we are so familiar with this story, it's easy to lose some of the edge and the punch of this, isn't it? I mean, of course, it's the Christmas story. We know the Christmas story. We hear it again and again, year in, year out, and we talk about the goodness and sufficiency and beauty of Christ week in and week out here, but it is easy for us to miss what would have sounded so shocking to them, and maybe if we open our ears again, it will sound so shocking to us again. Do you realize that even in these few verses in the first chapter of Luke, that Luke, Gives us, that God in Scripture gives us some of the answers to the most significant questions you ever ask and that any human being ever asks. Because what do we see before us here demonstrated in Luke chapter 1? First, we see that God exists. Is there really a God? Is there really anything out there? And Luke says, yes, God exists. But not only that, God is personal. He's not a force. He's not some ambiguous power that stands behind the universe. He is a person who stands behind the universe. And a person is one with whom we can be in relationship. And that's what this passage shows us too, that our God, the one who exists, the one who is personal, actually wants a relationship with us. Now, of course, that doesn't shock you, because you're, you know, exceedingly good-looking, socially adept, well above average, of course God would want to know us, right? For the readers of Luke and for us, isn't it amazing? God wants to know us. He comes to us, and He comes to us in the person of His Son. Not only that, we see that when He comes to us, God forever after now understands experientially our lives from the inside, not just from the outside. Because He has taken on flesh. He has breathed our air. He has felt our pain. And that means that for you, wherever you are right now in the ups and downs and the struggles and joys of your life, if you're asking this question, what could God possibly be up to in this? Even in the midst of that question, you need to know at least one thing. It is not that God does not understand. Because He does. Because He has experienced this life from the inside. And the incarnation of Jesus shows us that. Here's something else He shows us. God knows, as we do, that our world is tremendously screwed up. We feel the heart effects of that all the time, don't we? Our relationships, our work, our families, having to mow the grass every week. So many ways we see that so many things in the world are so broken and we see in the incarnation that God knows the world is messed up too and that He is doing something and in Christ has done something about it. He sees, He cares, and He is stepping into the mess with us. And that means that He, because He is this, knows this, and made us, He knows that you are waiting for something, you are looking for something you are hungry for something this Advent season. And he knows what that is even better than you do and better than I do. Because Jesus is the best thing that ever happened. We see that in how he comes. We also see that in why he came. Two things I want to point out this morning. Jesus came to reverse and to reign. Okay, first, to reverse. To reverse the expectations and the basic structure of our world. To turn it upside down. Okay, we see this, the start of this in verses 51 through 53. Look back there with me, please. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent empty away. He's come to bring reversal. He's come to bring down the proud and to raise up the humble. Scattered the thoughts of the proud, brought down the mighty from their thrones, sent the rich away empty. That is part of the message of the gospel. That God comes to bring down the proud. Those who will not give God central place in their lives. Those who will not, uh, or those who above all seek to seek God as a means to their own ends rather than finding God as a joyful end in and of itself. Or maybe simply those who don't and won't realize and own up to the truth of our lives that we are desperately broken and we need God. Something's terribly broken in our lives, in our relationship with God, something only God can fix. And the proud, by definition, will never see this. And all of us in our proud moments can't see this. That we are a people who come to God not with our record of our achievements, not with our long list of worth, not with our beauty and our intelligence, not with any of that. We come with our sin and our brokenness and our need because God has come to bring down the proud and raise up the humble. And this is the reverse of what we see everywhere else around us. Thinking about that is this weekend, Friday, we went and got our Christmas tree and pulled down the Christmas train out of the attic and and we put it around the the tree. And and one of the little train cars we have has got a... um, it's got a little elf and a reindeer, and the elf chases the reindeer around and around as the train goes. And and when I when I set up the the train this year, I, I inadvertently put that little car on backwards, and so now you've got a reindeer back, you know, backing up, and a, and an elf coming backwards after him like this. And you know, after a couple rounds of this, I realized that the car was on backwards, so I spun it around, and, and now everything works the way it should. And but here's the thing about life in our world. We are so used to the proud being held up as a model that we should honor and emulate that we have not realized how upside down this world really is. And Jesus comes as he brings reversal. What he's actually doing is putting things straight. And he's turning the car back around so that everything flows in the right direction. He has come to bring down the proud and to raise up the humble. And he came in humility himself. He comes embodying humility. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever really tried to be humble and to really do something humble? And if you have, it's sort of, it's hard, isn't it? You know, Uh, this uh, driven home to me a number of weeks ago when all our students are in town and, and, and things have been very full here. So the next Sunday I came back. Uh, and here before the first service, so, so got here early, and I parked at the very far end of the parking lot. You know, 900 yards down there. So I park in the far end of the parking lot because I think, you know, it's going to be crowded, and you know, I don't want people to have to walk a long way. And man, you know, I'm, I'm what a great pastor I am. You know, I mean, honestly, just the humility that just exudes from that. So, I, so I parked there, feeling pretty good about myself, and I, and I come back, and after the service, uh, second services, everybody leaves. Walking back in the parking lot, and, and, and you may know this, uh, our, our deacons, uh, every, every Sunday one of our deacons serves as the deacon of the day. It's, it's one of the many ways our deacons so faithfully serve our church. And the deacon of the day, he comes in early and he unlocks. He makes sure everything flows smoothly on a Sunday morning and locks up and all that stuff. So I'm walking, after all the services, I'm walking back to my car, and the deacon of the day happened to be Richard Wilmoth. And so, uh, so there I am walking to my car, and I get out there And Richard's car was about three spaces closer to the building than mine was. And I thought to myself, I've out-deaconed the deacons. (laughs) What Richard needs is a little more humility in his life. And you know what you find as soon as you find yourself being so humble, how hard it is as it escapes your grasp, and even in that moment, how hard it is to be humble. Well, here we see that Jesus steps into this world in utter humility, not simply parking across the parking lot, but on the other side of the universe from his home. What does he do? Divests himself of his majesty, of the glory that he had enjoyed since before time began, and steps into this obscure corner of the world in the, purpose, in the person, the most vulnerable thing you can imagine, a newborn baby. Here's the way Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus steps into our world in humility, and He comes to lift up the humble. Again, verses 52 through 55. He has shown strength with His arm. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Exalted those of humble estate. Filled the hungry. Came to lift up those who know they need God. With this good message of hope, God has come for you. And the thing that you are looking for is found in me, in Jesus
1: Come that we might not only hunger after
0: the gifts of God, but that we might know and hunger after the giver himself. Uh, Tim Keller, another Presbyterian pastor, uh, puts the whole dynamic here in, in this way in speaking about the surprising message of the gospel. Because the truth is, Christianity is not really what most people out in the world think that it is. And maybe for some of us, we tend to think that it is. Because we 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 work this way, and by the way, so does essentially every other religion, uh, the good are in and the bad are out. Who's in, who's out? The good are in, the bad are out. Whatever that standard of goodness is. Okay, those who have lived a good enough life, who've been morally exemplar, moral, moral exemplars, who have been morally moral exemplars, who have made the grade, they come to church enough, they've given enough money, They've helped their neighbor enough. They've done all the right things. Or those who just have not made the grade, made some poor choices along the way. Marriage just doesn't shine like that of the morally exemplary people. Maybe they've maybe they've done some serious th- things along the way. and At the end of the day, the good are in, the bad are out. Well, what this passage tells us is that is not the gospel, but rather the humble are in. And the proud are out. Because if you're living on this grid of the good are in and the bad are out, that's gonna lead you to one or two one of two places. It's either gonna lead you to this subtle, intolerant pride. My marriage works. Look at theirs. Go to a restaurant, look at those kids running around. Ugh. Look at my two perfect kids, sitting up straight, using the correct fork. Ah, but there's... You know, look at that guy slacking off at work again. If only he had a work ethic like mine. Whatever your standard of measurement is, we're going to look down on those who do not make the grade. Or you're going to go to the other extreme. You're going to see that standard of goodness, and you're going to be very aware that you do not live up to it. And so instead of intolerant pride, that is going to push you to this desperate, grasping despair. Because there is a standard, and once again, I have not met it. Is there any hope for me? And Jesus comes and reminds us, even in his birth, that it is not the good who are in and the bad who are out, but the humble are who are in and the proud who are out. Because the humble know that their only hope is in the graciousness of God, not in their achievement, not in their record, not in their stellar family, not in their list of successes, The humble know that their only hope is in Jesus. And the proud want to hold on to everything but Jesus. The incarnation shows us God reversing things as the humble are brought up and the proud are brought down. So Jesus came to bring this reversal. He also came, we see very clearly here, to reign. Verses 32 and 33, back to Gabriel's announcement. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What does he say? Words that would have been very uh, recognizable to Mary. Finally, the coming king has arrived. and He's coming like this. Because even as God hands the kingship of His people to David in the Old Testament, He says there is a greater king, a greater son of David coming. Uh, here's what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7. He says, "When your, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David receives this promise and as 2 Samuel goes on, and the Old Testament goes on, you think, is it going to be his son? Uh, Is it going to be the next son that comes? Is it going to be Solomon? Is it going to be Solomon's son? Who will finally be this king? And you see, Time after time, king after king, son after son, falling so incredibly far short. Yet this promise, this thread runs through the Old Testament that that son is coming. That's what Gabriel says to Mary. That son has arrived. The Davidic king has come. Jesus is king. He says he will reign over his people forever, that there will be no end to his kingdom Now think just for a moment, whether you believe this or not, but just think about it for a minute. If it is true that Jesus is king, and that his throne will last forever, that his reign is unbreakable, then is there any other way for us to live and to seek to live than in harmony with that reign? Jesus is king. So he lays claim to every square inch of our lives. Everything falls under his sovereignty, under his dominion. He is our king. And he calls us to live in his good reign. What do we need to hear about this reversal and Jesus coming as king? Are we too high? Too proud? Do we need to be brought down? Are we too low? We need to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel that lifts us up. Or Jesus is king. What are you doing right now in your life with Jesus' claim to kingship, His reign that will never end? Are you a part of that kingdom? Are you stepping into it with both feet? Or do you find yourself standing on the outside, looking in to a kingdom maybe you have not tasted yet? Maybe you look every Christmas, and you love the sight of Jesus the baby lying in the manger. But what about Jesus the king seated on his throne? Jesus, this king, is calling to you. Jesus is the best thing that ever happened. And lastly, we see that briefly. We see Jesus is the best thing that ever happened in those to whom he came. We see that he came to Mary. Verses 46 through 49. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is, is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And even the words of the angels, he first greets Mary. Mary, greetings. The Lord's favor is on you. What's he saying? Mary looks and hears those words from the angel and she speaks words of praise herself when she realizes, God has noticed me. He sees me. He has found me. This obscure corner of the world, this likely teenage girl about to bear a child and bear the scorn of her whole community. This child. She says, God has noticed me. No one's ever noticed me. Yet God looks in and says, you, Mary. Now this is a point at which Protestants get really nervous. Look what the Bible says. She says, all generations will call me blessed. Because she is. And so we give testimony to that today as well. Mary this blessed one who was given the great gift and the great responsibility and the great joy of being the one, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. It was amazing to Mary, and it should rightfully be amazing to us. God stepping into this, picking this young woman, bestowing His favor on her. And she sings, Because Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to Mary. But we see in her song, too, that who did Jesus come to? Not simply to Mary, He comes to us. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary goes from this song of praise about what God has done for her, and she looks outward and says, here is what God has done for the world. Here is what God has done for us. And here is what God has done for you. This word, this gospel, good news for us. Are you finding it to be good news this Advent season? That God has noticed us. That He has noticed you. in all the obscurity of your place in the world. And all the frustrations and all the struggles and all the joys. You're one little part of the universe. He has noticed you and brought you favor, and brought me favor in the person of His Son, Jesus. Let me just say this in conclusion. Those of us struggling with the ambivalence of Advent, how are we going to step into this season better? With both feet. We're we going to have our eyes open to what God has done and is doing among us. Well, Mary points the way for us here. In verse 38, and then in verse 36. Look what she says in verse 38 when she receives this word from the angel Gabriel, this, this glorious word that is going to, in some ways, make her life even so much more difficult for so long. He says this. She says this. Behold. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I know my glorious and blessed place. I am God's servant. I'm God's servant. The proud are brought down, the humble are lifted up, that we might be what this. God's servant at rest in the presence of our master, in the presence of our king. She says, I am God's servant. What would it mean for us to embrace that for ourselves, even this Advent? What are you doing in the middle of your life? Confused about your family, confused about your work, struggling in so many places. Who are we? You are God's servant. And that is a good thing to be. She goes on and says, Let it be to me according to your word. Jesus, Father, have your way with me. What does she do? She takes her life and she puts it into the hands of God, her Father. She says, whatever you think best to bring me, may it be to you according to your will, not mine. Eugene Peterson points out, Maybe Jesus learned to pray this prayer from his mother. Because we hear this at the end of Luke. Not my will be done, but yours. Mary prays it here. May we pray that. May we, like Mary, put our lives in faith in the hands of our Father. Lord, I trust you. I don't understand, but I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. And then thirdly, verse 46. How does she respond? Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Can you rejoice this Advent season? Can you utter praise, even if that comes through lips that have been drawn tight with pain this season? It's going to come easier for some of us than others this Christmas season. But would we be a people who rejoice, who remember again where our hope is to be found, people who remember again that Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to us let's pray father we do pray that again you would remind us that Jesus is the